the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Don't have time to go on SoCal Live today? Leave Scott a voicemail at 213-537-3812. That's 213-537-3812. Hi. Good night, everybody. Ah, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Welcome to Southern California Live. Good to be with you today as we are each and every day from 3 to 5 right here on Southern California Live. I'm Scott Furrow, your host, and it is fantastic to be with you. It's a beautiful day out uh, today and so many things going on. I just want to encourage you to to keep the faith and keep growing in your faith. You know, one of the things that is a big deal with all of us, of course, is our relationships with our significant others. For many of you, you're married. Some of you have would like to be married one day. Others of you were are divorced or you are a widow or widower and uh, maybe you're seeking to get married again. There's a lot of different boxes that you might check. And depending on where you are, you know, there's some very great advice that's good for everybody. And, you know, there's some funny things that are happening in the in the world of social media. Some younger people are putting out their their marriage advice. There's a pastor who's on uh, most of the social media platforms. His name is Jeffrey. And he does this thing called Pro Marriage Tips. And what he does is he takes his camera phone, he's got his camera phone on, and he start, He says, pro marriage tip. And you start to think it's serious, but it's not going to be serious. It's kind of a joke. But the, the funny part about the video is behind him is his wife. And I think now more or less she's involved with the joke. But I think when it first started, he would just kind of come up and take this video, but make sure that she's in the frame so you can see her. And he would say some ridiculous, obnoxious thing and sometimes the best part about the video is the look on the face of his wife. They sound like this. Pro marriage tip. Always have your wife as the background of your phone. This way, if you're having a hard day, you can just look at the picture and tell yourself, if I can handle her, then I can handle anything. And so the funny part is he says that, which is obviously kind of an insulting, insulting thing. And he has this little smirk on his face. Behind him is her with this look on her face where she is, you know, just kind of looking shocked that he would say that. And uh, there's a whole bunch of them. And I think they, they make you laugh if you really think about it. So don't take this serious. When he's saying them, he knows that's not serious. What he's trying to do is just give an example of what sometimes happens in our marriages from, from a guy's perspective to really say to the, to the man who, of, of the house, to the husband, hey, this is not really the way this should go. Here's another one. What's up, guys? Another pro marriage tip. If your wife isn't feeling well, the best thing you can do is tell her to suck it up, get back to what she's good at, making sandwiches and doing laundry. You know, <laughs> what would happen if you really did uh, say that to your to your wife? I think that uh, it would not go over very well. I think that would not go well at all. How are you doing in your marriage or in your thoughts about marriage? If you're not married, 
What is it that you think, hey, you know what, these are some things that would really help out? There's, there's a ton of resources out there, uh, a great many things. In a minute, we're going to have a guest who will talk about this. And, you know, there are tools. If you go to Amazon.com and you look under marriage advice and things like that, it's, it's thousands, literally thousands of books on this topic. And it is pretty significant. Where do you go for marriage advice? Where do you get that? Did you go to premarital counseling? Christy and I did. We didn't find it that great, to be honest, just for us. We ended up having a conversation about if you can agree on which direction the toilet paper should go, whether it folds over the top or comes underneath, um, then then it's really going to work for you. Uh, and, you know, what's funny about that, though, is Christy and I kind of mocked that when we when we left our, our sessions. But I have found over over time that actually – that's a big deal that actually there are there are couples who will argue over the weirdest things and it becomes very, very serious very, very quickly sometimes. What are some things that maybe you argued about or that affected your life in uh, in marriage that you had to really push through? Do you have any thoughts about this? You can give me a call. 888-528-2557. 888-528-2557. That's the number for Southern California Live. 888-528-2557. You can also send a message. SoCalLive at KKLA.com. I was working with a couple one time where they were having a big issue over the fact that a habit that he had that he did not disclose before they were married is that he liked to, uh, he liked to save his fingernail clippings in a jar by the bed. And, and maybe that's you. Is this like a conversation you just don't want to have in the afternoon? It was, it's not a really good lunchtime thing, but that was the thing. They had to really work through that, as you can imagine. But there's a lot of more complicated things to work through in your marriage. And the Bible actually has a lot to say about marriages. You have to be careful with the idea that the that there is a, a biblical marriage. There is a biblical marriage. There's the idea that a husband and wife should come together for a life, that they it's when the two become one flesh. And it, there's this idea of the biblical marriage, but you got to be careful because a lot of marriages in the Bible, most of them are pretty bad, if you think about it. They're not all examples. You know, Abraham and Sarah, they have their good parts, but they also had their bad parts. All right. Lots of marriages in the Bible uh, had different things going on that were that were really not good. Ananias and Sapphira, you know, that one uh, did not turn out very well at all by the end of it. And they were working in cahoots, but they were working in cahoots against the Lord. They were working together against God and against what it is that God has for us. The Bible is not something that is silent about marriage. There is a lot of in the Bible about marriage. Have you ever done a study of the book of Song of Solomon? Have you ever gone through that book? I'll bet that you haven't. I'll bet most people have not gone through that book before in the Bible. Did you know that God gave us an entire book of the Bible on love, sex, and marriage? And in that book is dating. In that book is advice on how to have arguments. In that book is is I think a very realistic view of what it looks like when a couple comes together and they meet and they become attracted to each other for the right reasons, when the couple comes together and they realize, you know what, God really has uh, a good plan for this and we're going to keep it. And you watch a couple in that book date, you watch them get engaged, and then you watch them have a honeymoon, which actually is very... um, 
it's to for lack of a better word it's very explicit so the things that happen in that in fact some people think throughout the church history the book hasn't always been taught that way because there's been a thought that god wouldn't write about sexual things in graphic language in the bible it's poetic language okay not graphic like your your typical uh you know uh pop song something you might be seeing at a concert today but it is written in a way where you cannot deny what it means if you just read it and lots of people will say oh well, it's something that is just an analogy of Jesus and the church. Uh, And it is. In fact, there is a great analogy of Jesus and the church in that book. However, the book is about a couple. The book is about a couple who are both flawed people, a couple who has to come together and be attracted to each other for the right reasons, a couple who does what the Lord wants them to do, and they wait to have sexual relations until they're married, And then that happens when they're married on the honeymoon. And then the very next thing that happens is they have a fight. There's eight chapters in the book, and two chapters describe this couple arguing. What's the weirdest argument you ever had with your wife? One time I had an argument. Christy and I, we've kind of forgotten what this actually was even about because it was so dumb. Uh, But at the moment, it didn't seem dumb. It had to do with the, the type of cleaning detergent that we were using to clean the bathrooms. And she wanted a certain brand, and I wanted a different brand. And, I mean, it was, it was the worst fight, I think to this day, the worst fight we've ever had. We laugh about it now, and we can hardly even recognize what that was. But it matters a lot. And, you know, something that you see throughout the Scriptures is something that matters the most for us is our ability to speak well to each other, our ability to be kind to one another. That's something that I've noticed is that men and women use language with each other differently. Men can use their words kind of like a mallet where sometimes a guy in marriage, and if you are the husband and this has been your place, sometimes the guy in marriage will say something one time and his wife will remember it for life. He might say something like, you are the worst cook in the world. And every meal she makes for the rest of her life, she'll probably remember that remark. And it is pretty brutal uh, when that happens. Women, on the other hand, wives tend to use the words more like a scalpel. And they'll say to their husband, you know what, you're really stupid, or that was a real dumb thing to do. Why did you do that? And the thing is, is that, guys, we actually forget about it. It sort of hits us, and uh, we sort of forget about it. And then maybe the person that we're married to calls us stupid again later and we forget about it or they do something that's a little bit demeaning a little condescending we forget it we forget about it we don't think about it we don't dwell on it we don't remember it in the same way but what's happening over time is little pieces of us are being taken away and over time well typically and this and i realize that men and women are different and sometimes the opposite is true but very often what you see is that man who used this word like a mallet. I counseled a couple one time, and on the honeymoon, uh, when she asked the terrible question she should never ask, do I look fat? He said, yes, you could stand to lose a couple, and then he told her where those pounds need to come off. Now, I'll tell you what, what her immediate response was to go get a gym membership and she worked out like crazy and she looked like she could have been a personal trainer a few months later. However, the pain of his one remark 
stayed with her for years and it built resentment and it built so much pain and she never said anything about it. So that means there was, there was really no apology. There was no, gosh, I wish I didn't say that. Now, he should have apologized. He should have never said it. And it builds long-term resentment and difficulty. For him, for the guy, what tends to happen is little remarks over time. And a few years later, it builds that resentment. And sometimes he doesn't know why. He doesn't have a specific instance that he can remember. He just feels like uh, she doesn't like me and she hasn't liked me and I'm failing somehow. And he'll usually, you know, sometimes he'll go the direction of having an affair or get into pornography or something else. Sometimes he'll go in the direction of playing sports every night or finding that he is happier having a man cave somewhere that he never wants to come out of. Is that something that you've experienced? That's a that's a big deal uh, in today's world. 888-528-2557. This is Southern California Live. What are some things that you've learned that help you make have a better marriage? Nobody's marriage is perfect. You're all, everybody who's married is married to a flawed person. Everybody who wants to get married will marry one day a flawed person. Now, I wouldn't go into your dating relationship and say, hey, you're a flawed person. Uh, that doesn't really work too well. But you have to keep it in the back of your mind. You have to remember that you are marrying somebody who has sin, somebody who's going to bring whatever his or her background is of, of sinful struggles they've had, have come to her or him, you know, the she or he brings that into the marriage, and there are things to go through with that. What are some things that you have found have really helped your marriage? What are some things that have been something that you wouldn't have expected, but that through the scripture, through the work of the Lord, you've seen your marriage really get blessed? One of those things that I've noticed is couples who actually get into the word, when they get into the word of God, God changes them. And sometimes it's specific Bible study on marriage or things like that. Maybe you got into a small group, but what I've also noticed is this, that if you just read the word of God together, anything, you're in a Bible study together, you're doing one together, or you go to one in your church, you go to a Sunday school class, you do something that you're in the word of God together. Even if it's not directly related to marriage, it will help your marriage. The reason why is it gives you something spiritual to talk about. And God begins to work to put you on the same page as the other person in your life. And it changes. We did a program once called uh, There's a Bible in 90 Days. And I encourage people to read the Bible in 90 days. You, you're going to come up to New Year's and maybe you're going to have, you know, your one-year Bible, your two-year Bible. There's, there's even a three-year Bible out there. There's all kinds of reading plans. It's fine. But, you know, the Bible, there is so much in it and so much in it worth studying. I encourage you to do that. But when you read the Bible as a story and you just plow through it, you don't understand everything. Take you about It takes about three months. If you read your Bible for an hour a day, think of the Netflix show that you really don't need to watch or shouldn't be watching. And let's say you took an hour, an hour to actually read through your Bible every single day. Do you know what? You would be done with the whole Bible in three months. That's what would happen. In three months, you could have the entire Bible read. How many of you have actually read the Bible all the way through? Studies say that most Christians have not read most of the Bible. And it is an incredible thing when you think about that, that most Christians have not read most of their Bible. I was telling you that the Bible has a whole book on it on love, sex, romance, and dating. Did you know that's called Song of Solomon? It'll take a little bit of work. 
if you're reading through the Bible, you're going to plow through Genesis. It's great. Exodus, Leviticus is where you, you hit the brakes sometimes and give up. But keep pushing through. If you don't understand everything, if you're going to read the Bible quickly, one of the benefits is, is that you go through it and you just keep going past the stuff you don't understand. Read it. You know, make a mental note or write it down and say, you know what, I'll have to come back to that later. But keep reading. You'll speed through Joshua, Judges, Ruth, great stories, First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles. You're going to feel like it's a little bit repetitive. You're going to go through Job, Psalms, Proverbs, and like that, Ecclesiastes. It's a little dark. Read it all in one sitting. You're going to do a lot better. Song of Solomon, it's poetic. You're going to think it means stuff that it actually does, but you're going to keep reading. You can study it later. You're going to get stuck in Ezekiel in some places, but keep going. One of the advantages is, is that once you finish the Old Testament and you get to the New Testament, you figure something out. You figure out how closely related they are. You figure out how they are right next to each other, and you start to get into the New Testament and the Gospels, and Jesus starts quoting Isaiah, and you realize something. I just read that recently. And you hear Jesus say something, you read something, and you, you, you realize that he's saying something that you just read in Isaiah, and you go, oh, and you start to make this connection. And I'm saying this because one of the couples that went through this, their marriage was in trouble. Their marriage was in deep trouble, uh, almost divorced, and they decided just to give it a few months, you know, a few weeks later. And they told me that on the second reading through the Bible, they got all the way through it. They were so excited about it. They went all the way through the Bible, and then they started again, because if you do two hours a day, you can do the whole Bible in 45 days. They said that somewhere in the middle of Isaiah, reading through the second time, they rededicated their marriage to the Lord that they did this together while, while sitting in bed, reading one night, and see what had happened is they started talking about scriptural things with each other. They started talking about what they're learning, what they're talking about, and suddenly their hearts started to get tuned into God. Suddenly their hearts started to get moved into who God is and what God means to them, and they rededicated their life to God. They they realize that, hey, you know, the things that we're upset about in the marriage, uh, we can work through those things with the Lord's help. And in their case, it was a lot more than whatever detergent they were using in, you know, clean the bathroom. They had some really significant things to deal with, and they dealt with it. That's the power of the Word of God. I don't know how well we believe that. Do you really believe that the Word of God is that powerful? We say it, We say it's the sword of the Spirit. We say all these things about the Word of God, but do you really believe that it is the living Word of God, that it will speak to your heart, that it will change your life? Sometimes you won't accept that until you actually discipline yourself to go through it. That's one of the greatest things about reading through the Bible, is that it helps you in all kinds of areas in your life. And when it comes to marriage, you're going to read the Song of Solomon, and you're not going to get it right away, although you'll get some of it. And then you'll go back to it to really study it. And you realize that, hey, you know what? There's something just very, very powerful about this book. There is something very meaningful. And maybe it makes your face turn red. I've preached this in church. I've done this to like college groups and young adult groups, and you can just kind of get into it, and they laugh, and they love it. I think you could run a young adult ministry or a college ministry and just teach from this book constantly and just repeatedly throw in some Ecclesiastes and Proverbs, just deal with Solomon stuff and really teach people about life. Because really, you're supposed to read this book when you're a kid. You're supposed to know all of this in high school. That's one of the things that is happening today is we don't really teach. You know, we have some kind of sex ed that we're teaching. Hopefully, 
you're teaching your kids about sex ed and not just uh, taking whatever the school's giving them because the school's probably teaching you something bad about it. But you're supposed to learn that young. And you have this book, and it says things like this. Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for your love is more delightful than wine. And okay, you're, you're already into something. So when people say this is just some kind of uh, allegory of Jesus and the church, and this is Jesus giving the church a big sloppy wet kiss, like somebody wrote in that song that we were singing a couple of years ago, uh, that's not what this is. This is exactly what it is. This is her expressing her attraction to this guy. Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for your love is more delightful than wine. It is put to, it's a song, it's a song about human love, and so it gets really deep in that poetry. She continues and she says, for your love is more delightful than wine, pleasing is the fragrance of your perfumes. Your name is like perfume poured out. No wonder the maidens love you. Take me away with you. Let us hurry. Let the king bring me into his chambers. You know, it is, um, you start to get into the story and you realize that she says, let him. She's noticing him. And she is attracted to him physically, which is okay. It's biblically okay. That's how God made us. All right. And it attracts her. But what she's attracted to is his name, his character. Your name is like a perfume poured out. Your name is purified oil, she says. That's what attracts her to him. His hair, no, not his hair. His chariot, nope. His bank account, nope. His character, who he is. That's an amazing thing. There's something that he later finds attractive to her in the same way when you keep reading. It is about her character. It's the same thing. Can I give you this advice right now with the person who is your significant other? If you're struggling or if you're just having a dry spell, if you're just dealing with whatever, go back and think about the things about their character that you love. Don't focus on the parts of their character that need some work. You might need some counseling. They might need serious work. They might be just because you're marrying a flawed person. But the way that we get attracted to people, including the person we're already married to, is not because of how they look or how much money they make or what their career is, but about their character. You're listening to Southern California Live. The number is 888-528-2557. I'm Scott Furrow, your host. I thought we were going to have a guest this hour. Not quite sure yet, but if we do, we'll bring him on. Otherwise, we will talk about the news of the day and keep talking about these things. 888-528-2557. I'll be back in just a moment as the Wednesday edition continues. Stay tuned. This is SoCal Live with Scott Furrow on 99.5 KKLA. Join the conversation now by texting Scott in the SoCal Live studio at 213-537-3812. Welcome back, everybody. Southern California Live. I'm Scott Furrow, your host, 888-528-2557, 888-528-2557. If you'd like to join the conversation. We are talking about marriage this hour. Just thought we would spend some time talking about that because there's a lot of things going on in politics and the world and a lot of tension, a lot of weirdness. And, you know, one of the things that is true about Christians that we've we've lost some ground on as far as our testimony is, is in marriage. You've probably heard the idea that 50% of marriages fail, and that's true in the church. It's not exactly right, that statement. Um, I think it's about 35% of first marriages fail nationally, and then it's in the neighborhood of 70 or 80% of second and third and so on marriages fail. Okay, so 
the 50% of marriages fail is basically accurate, but it's not first marriages. It is including people who get married two or three times. Those get compounded. And one of the reasons for that, and some of you know this, if you've been divorced and uh, then you got remarried and then divorced again, sometimes it's because you, you either married a person that in the same way uh, you're not getting along with or they were also abusive or it just you didn't marry somebody who believed the same things as far as you did with values, whatever the reason is, sometimes we just make that same mistake, right? Um, or or we get into the same kind of relationship. I hesitate on the mistake part because going into it, it's really hard with relationships, right, to, to know everything. Sometimes we don't know everything even going in um, to it, which is, I think, a reason to date and ask questions and have conversation. And that's why those happen. In the church, it's slightly less than uh, 35% of first marriages fail, actually, but it's a lot. Uh, a lot of us have done that. And I think that the reason is, you know, there's there's so much pressure today with the pornography, which is, I think, uh, in basically everybody that I've dealt with, usually there's pornography or there is um, an emotional um, relationship that usually started emotionally but then wound up being something physical. Something like one out of every three divorce petitions today, I think it's one out of three, one out of three divorce petitions today have the word Facebook in it. And what's happening is people are reconnecting with old flames on Facebook or they are developing relationships with people at work or people who are even just strangers, people they've never met. But what happens is is they go into chat relationships and they become emotionally intimate with somebody. Not, you know, they're not having a physical affair, but the person who is their best friend, the person who they tell their problems to is some guy or some woman they met online that maybe they've never even met in person. And then they stop having those conversations with their mate for whatever reason. And one of the things we have to do to push through in our marriages is to have that communication with our mate to completely do that. And sometimes that help, it helps us to go back and remember why it was we got married in the first place. Have you ever had a difficulty in your marriage that you recovered from? Some lessons that you learned where maybe things were rough, but things got better? Those, by the way, you know, whatever lessons that you've learned at any point in life, some things to remember is that there's grace, that Jesus died for that. Jesus died for the sins that you have committed. And, uh, you should not be happy about that, but you should have meaning that that you you put those on the cross for your Savior, but at the same time, you should be joyful about that, that you have forgiveness from the Savior of the universe. And I think one of the things God wants us to do with our forgiven sins is there's a lot of redeeming that God does through them when we can tell our stories, when we can tell, hey, I messed up in these ways and I did better. A great couple in my church growing up, uh, not my church growing up, the church that I was at uh, most recently as pastor, uh, they had a lot of trouble. You know, they they told the usual joke, you know, well, we've been married, you know, 70 years. We've been happily married for 50 years and married 70 years. That's what they would say. Because uh, their first uh, 20 some odd years were rough. And he was in the Navy and, uh, you know, the whole girl in every port thing, that was true for him. And they would tell those stories and how they had to deal with betrayal and forgiveness and wanting divorce and so many things. And the only reason they stuck it out was Christ and finally rededicating their life to Christ. And I know many of you listening uh, couldn't do that. That's why Jesus gives you the out for adultery. 
And I don't think it's the, the preferable thing. God, The Bible says God hates divorce. I think he would rather we always come back together and work it out, but it's so hard. And so I know that, and Jesus knows that. And that once again, there is grace and there is mercy for that. 888-528-2557. This is Southern California Live. I'm Scott Furrow, your host. I was mentioning to you that couples that over time do a lot better are couples that are in the Word of God together. They're couples who pray together and have family time. Have you ever found yourself in a situation, and I have before, Christy and I will laugh at it, but where we're, we're sitting next to each other on the couch or we're sitting next to each other you know, in bed at night or wherever we're at, and one of us will text the other some kind of question rather than just look over and ask. And uh, that happens today because we often get separated into our, our screens. You know, it used to be that you'd sit down and you'd watch a movie together or watch TV or watch the news or read a book or do something where you're together. Now we can be together but not. Now, even as families, we can be together, but not together, because maybe all of us are looking at a different screen, and we're in the same room, and we're in proximity to each other. Can I give you a suggestion? Find a basket in your house, if everybody's got a phone, and the purpose of that basket is for dinner time, for we're going to watch a movie time, for whatever family time you've got together, and maybe it's just husband and wife time. Put the phones and the iPads and the video games in that basket and walk away from it. Put it far enough from the table that you can't just grab it. You can turn off the phone, by the way. Unless there's a family emergency going on, you probably don't need that call or that text right now. We used to live in a world where some of you would remember, you know, if something was going on and you weren't by the phone, well, you just didn't hear about it for a long time. That's the weirdest thing today, right? Today, you know, if something were to happen to my kids today, if they had a problem at school or got injured, And you know what? I would hear about it. I would hear about it during the show. I would get a text from my wife. Hey, Johnny broke his arm again. There'd be something I would know about it. In the old days, I wouldn't know about it till I got home. (laughs) That would be the way it is. And you know what? Everything would be fine. Uh, You can go back to that a little bit by putting stuff aside, by spending some actual family time and getting away from the things that are a distraction to you. I found that to be a very, very helpful thing for people. Let me get back into, I promised this before, I mentioned this before, that in the book of, Sol- of Solomon, you've got a great display of, of the gospel. And it is, it's a subject that sometimes we don't want to talk about in the church, which I think is unfortunate because it's a topic that's talked about everywhere else. And it's, it's physical relationships. And it's about the feelings that we have that are God-given of physical attraction for people of the opposite sex who you would marry one day. But there's a reason biblically why it's to be held off till marriage. I think that we fail to tell the kids this. I think that we fail to let our kids know, hey, it's not just that God doesn't want you to do this till you're married, because the world's going to say, that's crazy. Why would you wait till you're married? And if the church doesn't have a better answer, if the only answer is uh, because we go to church or because we're Christians, and that's all it is, you know what? That doesn't fly with our kids. It just doesn't. When we say to ourselves, you know, we just say, Here, here's the rule. When they're little kids, you give them the rule. You know, why did you do this? Because I said so. But when they get older, when they get, you know, junior high, high school, you got to give them a reason. You have to give them the actual biblical understanding for where this is. The scriptures do give us a reason. I heard a story one time 
and it's about a missionary who went to a community by a river. And the townspeople where this missionary went were all crying up and down the river. And the missionary notices that in this town are these crocodiles in the river. And what's happening in that town is the crocodiles keep coming up out of the river and snatching up the kids. 13-year-old girl, 12-year-old boy. And he sees this going on. And then he notices throughout the town as he walks around that there are people missing limbs. There are visible scars on people. There are obvious emotional troubles with people around town. And he said, surely somebody must be doing something about this. So he went to the schools and he says, isn't anybody doing anything about the crocodiles? And in the schools, there's some teaching about the ecological need for crocodiles, but there's no teaching about the dangers of crocodiles. In fact, teenagers in the schools were encouraged to experiment with the crocodiles in different ways. And they're given some tools for interacting with crocodiles in a safer way. And that's what they got from schools. And he thought, well, that's not doing any good. It's actually encouraging people to do things that's causing the harm. So he thought, well, surely the government must be trying to do something about this. So he goes to the council meeting and he wonders if they're going to talk about the crocodile problem. And he finds out that they can't do much because so much of the economy is driven by crocodiles. And deep down, people are kind of enjoying the interactions with the crocodiles and there's crocodiles in the advertising, there's crocodiles in the clothing, there's crocodiles in the entertainment, and everything was about the crocodiles. And he said, surely the, the church in this town must be thinking about it. And he goes to church, and the church is full of people who've been wounded by crocodiles. He asks someone about what the church is doing about the crocodiles, and he's told that it's inappropriate to talk about crocodiles in church. And the preachers teach about how bad the crocodiles are, and they preach against all the pain they cause, but they won't discuss it further or positive reason that God made crocodiles, because it's rude. All the while, the crocodiles continue to devour that town. That's how we are sometimes about sex in the church. That has to stop. Everybody listening to this right now knows somebody who's been wounded by something in the sexual area. We're watching things go on TV, things in the transgender issue, in the abortion issue, in so many different issues that is not acknowledging in our culture the tremendous psychological, chemical, emotional, and spiritual pain that everybody goes through or everybody knows somebody who's going through it. And the statistics are enormous. And it's talked about everywhere except the church. Your Bible has a whole book that talks about it. I'll get back into that in a moment when we come back. I've got to take a break. The number is 888-528-2557. If you'd like to join the conversation, this is Southern California Live. I'm Scott Furrow. I'll be back as the Wednesday edition continues. Too nervous to go live on the radio with Scott Furrow? Then share your thoughts on the SoCal Live voicemail at 213-537-3812. That's 213-537-3812. Welcome back, everybody. Southern California Live, great to be with you today. If you'd like to join our conversation, the number is 888-528-2557. That's the call-in number, 888-528-2557. Before the break, I was telling you about uh, Song of Solomon, and we've been just talking about marriage. There's a a study that came out uh, just a few weeks ago talking about inflation and a lot of the pressures that are on the world today and the American Family Survey. And it's talking about how marriages are in even more trouble because of inflation, because of the pressure points in finance and their relational issues that that 
that that causes. If you're married, you're probably in a relationship. So often I find this the case where one person is less worried about money than the other. And one person is more prone to save and not spend money. And the other person is willing to spend it willy-nilly on different things and and less likely to to save, more wanting to have fun or experiences and different things. And that's okay when times are good, but it's uh, it can become a source of conflict when things aren't real good. And sometimes people are on the extreme, right? Sometimes you've got people who uh, they won't spend money on food if they can figure out how to do it. They're so uh, you know afraid of spending money. And then on the other side, you got people who will spend it on everything and they eat out every single meal and they'll go into debt for it. And when the economy gets tough, that's when those things hit the fan. How strong is your marriage? How how much strength do you have? And for Christian marriages, a lot of it has to do with how tight you are with Scripture and the Lord. And if I can encourage you and your family in your marriage, wherever you're at now, if things are great right now or if things have been difficult or you're not married, you want to get married one day, or you just want to deal with, with pain that you might have because of a marriage in the past— the answer is the same. You pursue Christ. And even when you're married, you, you pursue you mate, but you make sure that you pursue Christ first. And you both when both people are pursuing Christ first, and you're in the Bible, and you're worshiping God, and you're doing the best you can to be penitent, to be right with Christ, what happens is, is you're running towards Christ, and you look over, and your, your spouse is running right next to you. And it's a pretty cool analogy, and the closer you get to Christ, the closer you two get to each other, and things start to work out. In the Bible, you have a lot to be said about marriage, but there's a whole book about it. And one of the things that we fail to teach well is sex ed to kids, to give them a reason why sex is meant to be before marriage or after marriage. And, you know, I know that I'm not talking to a bunch of people who waited until they're married right now to have sex. And that's why you have to include grace. And that's why I think that in this book that definitely is an analogy of Christ and the church, probably one of the greatest parts of it is part of what happens when this couple actually gets married. So what happens in the book is uh, they start to date and they're attracted at first. And they're attracted to each other because of their character. And the poetry in this book, it says that. Chapter 2, they start to date. And they begin to share their desire for each other physically, that they have these desires. And it's completely God-honoring the way it's done in this book. It's not unusual. It's not something that you deny is happening. Of course it's happening. I actually had a couple one time who were engaged telling me that they were not sleeping together, not having sex is what they were saying. But they said that they were sleeping together in the same bed and living together, but they were uh, not having intercourse. I told them to break up. You should have seen the look on their face. I said, well, you guys need to break up. What do you mean? I said, if you guys are doing that and you're not actually uh, struggling so bad with those hormones, then you don't like each other very well. (laughs) And of course, I knew they were lying to me and they admitted later, yeah, we were making that up. Of course, I said, of course. And uh, my deal was, is I make the guy move out and you go get, before you get married, you go get right with God. You get out of the house if you're living there. You go sleep on a buddy's couch. You find another place. You go live with mom and dad till you get right with God and make sure that you can come back repentant, um, penitent before the Lord, and make the honeymoon something that's not just business as usual. And I'll tell you what, by the way, if you're engaged right now and you're you're not obeying the Lord, would you do that? Would you just get right with God before you get married? 
it makes so much of a difference. Every couple that I've asked to do that who've done it, every single one has come back to me and said that was the greatest thing we ever did. And it's because you get right with God. And it's right there in the scripture. It's something we should be teaching the kids. And you have this statement throughout Song of Solomon where they talk about their desire for each other. And it's daughters of Jerusalem, I charge you by the gazelles and by the does of the field. Do not arouse or awaken love until it so desires. And there's this conversation, this refrain that keeps happening in this song, do not awaken. Do not awaken, do not awaken. Chapter two, they're still attracted and they want each other. And they say, catch for us the foxes, the little foxes that ruin the vineyards while our vineyards are in bloom. The idea is that if you had a vineyard, you wanted to keep the foxes out because they'd come in and they would grab the grapes before they were fully in bloom and they wouldn't fully develop. And the reason, okay, here's the biblical reason. There's a lot of teaching that to do about this, but part of the biblical reason for waiting until you're married is it allows the relationship to grow and bloom. Okay. And guys, by the way, if you're in this relationship, you take the lead there. Okay. You know why? Because she suffers a lot more from sexual issues than you do. The woman keeps the kid. The woman carries the baby. The woman has society that looks down on her. And if you don't believe that, you know, what's a word for a guy who's promiscuous? There's some positive words, stud, words like that, player. What's a positive word for a woman who's promiscuous? There isn't one. I can't think of one. Guys, you protect the vineyard. You keep the foxes out. You do it. You set the standard. You protect her dignity. If she says, don't touch her, don't touch me there, then you don't, okay? And if she says, do touch me there, and you know intellectually that's the wrong thing to do, then you don't. You do it, okay? Uh, You set that standard. And ladies, you're not off the hook there, you know? You don't make it so complicated for him and difficult for him because his hormones are crazy, okay? You know what I mean. God says to be patient. And in this book, you have this couple who have these desires for each other. And it keeps saying, do not awaken love until it so desires. Do not awaken love until it's time. In chapter three, you have this. In chapter three, you've got a marriage and there's a wedding and there's 60 groomsmen. How many groomsmen did you have? Can you imagine how many uh, rented tuxedos that would be? Have you ever gotten a rented tuxedo that actually fit well? I haven't. One time I was in my best friend's wedding. I was in his wedding and... Uh, the pants I was wearing were not pants. They were a casual Quonset hut. They were so big. It was unbelievable. Huge wedding. Then in chapter four of this book, you get a honeymoon. And in this book, he starts to tell her how beautiful she is. And she's smiling. And it's suggestive. He's undressing her. And he's describing every part of her. And I'm not going to get into it right now on the show in the afternoon, but it is the Bible. It is the inspired word of God, this book. And it's how it ought to look. The gospel message here is that this is the time when he first sees her without anything on. Okay? He looks at her. We already know from the story that she feels insecure about the way she looks. She's been sunburned and she's got some other things going on. And this is the first time she is completely vulnerable to him and what he says. She said, don't even, earlier in the book, she says, don't even look at me. And he says this, he looks at her and he says, there is no flaw in you. That, my friends, is how you treat your wife, fellas. The thing is, is that intellectually, you know, nobody's perfect. And intellectually, we're going to get older. And whatever you think is flawless, one day is going to have, that's how we're built as human beings. The gospel message here is this, when you get married, 
And Jesus sees you for every, we're the bride of Christ, and we are standing before Christ fully exposed. He sees our heart. He sees our thoughts. He knows us better than we know ourselves, our motives, our intentions, all the ugliness that is sin. When you have Christ as your groom, he looks at you and he says, there is no flaw in you. See what I mean? So this is how, this is how marriage and relationships are meant to reflect Christ in the church. Now, we're all failures in this. We all deal with this, okay? This is such an incredibly beautiful story. So it has, like a lot of stories in the Bible, it has a practical application of men and women, but it also has the allegorical application of how Christ sees us. It's one of the, I'm not even getting into the half of it here, but it's one of the most beautiful and most profound views of the gospel that we see in the scriptures. Now, the next part of the chapter is very explicit honeymoon stuff, stuff you do in your honeymoon. And remember, throughout the book, it keeps saying, do not awaken love until it so desires. Do not awaken love until it so desires. They wait, they have this moment, and then the next word is awake. Awake, and it's, I'm not even going to read it, but it's, it's right there. I actually had somebody take a look at their Bible to make sure that's what they were reading one time when I went through this because it means exactly what you think it is. God is a God who created sex. He created sensuality. He created all of that stuff. He just wants you to put it in the right place. And this is the place. And right here in chapter four of that book is the only place God speaks and he blesses it. It's a great book. That is something that would help you. If you're dealing with marriage or you want to get married one day, the Bible tells you where it's at. It's a 3,000-year-old book that gives you the best picture of what a husband and wife ought to look like from attraction to dating. And by the way, the next two chapters, they fight, and then they get old together, and they deal with all kinds of stuff in that book that you're going to deal with. That's the scriptures. That's what's worth studying, and it makes everything better. And it's worth teaching that to your kids if they're you know old enough to kind of get it. I think teenager years is right. We can learn a lot from that. All right, thank you for listening this hour. Next hour, we've got uh, Phil DeCourcy, and he'll be on our, our program to talk about a great opportunity for guys and uh, just some other things going on in the culture. Always a great conversation with uh, Pastor Philip DeCourcy, and uh, we'll do some other things. By the way, if you are interested in election results on Election Day, I have a Facebook group that I run. It's called the Ferocious Election Day Special, and uh, you can join it. Go to our website here at uh, the radio website. Look for Southern California Live. You can click on the link to go find it, or you can go to ferocious.com, F-U-R-R-O-W-C-I-O-U-S.com. That's my last name, Furrow, ferocious.com, and join it. It's, it's nonpartisan. It's not about commentary, about left and right stuff. It's just about who's winning and losing, and uh, we have a good time. You can sign up for that for free, and we'll just have a good time on November 8th uh, for that. This is Southern California Live. I'm Scott Furrow, your host. I'll be back with Philip DeCourcy in the next hour. I'll be back as the Wednesday edition continues. Stay tuned. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. 
The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.